Hello and welcome to The Placemat, a podcast that should know better by now. I'm Dr Mike Smith, and as usual I'm joined by my fellow hosts, Mr Julian Patterson and Mr John Bennett. Meanwhile, at the presidential suite of a hotel in Beijing, the team are planning the next episode of the podcast. Hey, John, Julian, are you guys hungry? Um, I wonder if they've got room service. Yeah, I, I could eat something. They've loads of things on the menu. Maybe get something to drink too. Yeah, here we go. Here's the menu, Guabin Hotel. Okay, I'll just phone down. Hi there, is that room service? Hello, sir. How can I help you? Um, so can I order two chicken salads, one falafel wrap? Yes, sir. Can I also order an orange juice, a chilled bottle of Chablis... Sparkling water and a donut, please. Excellent, sir. Would you like some protective face masks with your sandwich? Oh, yes, yes, please. That sounds great. Can I tempt you with some beautiful visors fresh from the market this morning? Oh, go, go, go on then. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Uh, uh, ten million of those, please. Aprons, Mike. See if they've got any aprons. Have you got any aprons? Have you got any aprons? Why, of course. Just give me a few weeks, sir. Brilliant. Um, so uh, can you send the, the invoice to the British government, please? Certainly. I just need a name, sir. Uh, A name, of course. Um, It's Hancock with a C. Matt Hancock. Matt, Matt Hancock. It's Matt Hancock time. So, after that very convincing dramatic reconstruction, we learnt this week that Matt Hancock signed a £90 million equipment deal with a company that has its registered address as, and excuse my poor pronunciation, the Guobin Hotel, number nine, Fuai Street, Zhaisheng District. Fuai, indeed. You missed off the first bit. It was actually room 9401A in the Guobin Hotel. Maybe one of his ministers was on a business trip to Beijing, legitimately ordered room service for some protection in the middle of the night. You know, sometimes people get caught out. <laughs> it is one hell of a room service bill, though. Yeah, even for a Conservative minister. Uh, You know, at least we got the equipment, so it wasn't a complete waste of money. Yeah, it's been quite a couple of weeks, hasn't it, for value for money and contracts? Yeah, looks like it's a thank you and no white flag above her door for the nation's (laughs) second favourite Dido, Dido Harding. Nice cultural reference, Julian. Yes, despite Baroness Dido Harding being at the helm of the rather crap test and trace system, the Committee of MPs that scrutinises public spending has said... There's no evidence that the scheme did anything to reduce coronavirus infections. This hasn't helped that the bill now stands at an estimated £37 billion. So I looked into what £37 billion could buy these days, and I have to say that four times the annual budget for primary care (laughs) and around 25% of the overall NHS annual budget is quite a significant sum of cash. So... And that is impressive. What I the, the statistic that really grabbed me is that Tesla, you know, the company that's totally reinvented the car industry, have spent uh, less than a seventh of that in their entire R and D budget. I can go one better than that. The Mars Perseverance rover project could have been funded nineteen times by that budget. So. Talk about moonshot. This was more of a Mars shot, surely. 
It's just incredible. Well, the other thing is, is in 2019, the Washington Post estimated the cost of Greenland to be £30.5 billion. Now, if we'd bought Greenland, I'm just saying maybe, maybe... Didn't Donald Trump try and buy Greenland? What are you trying to say, John? (laughs) In all seriousness, though, back to the TAP thing, we've actually not seen the figures. TAP being test and trace, right? So I know people are quoting £37 which is, you know, the, the top number, but... Have we actually seen the figures? Have we seen the, the breakdown of the costs and actually who they've gone to? I don't think we have. Well, we've, we've, seen, we've seen that big fat 37 billion figure. Well, I wouldn't know how much a test and trace system should cost. I mean, have we got any comparators? This is the point, isn't it, Mike, John? You know, we don't know. We don't know what it costs, but it still just looks like a very large sum of money. We've just joked about all the things you could have bought for it instead like seven new car industries but you know honestly 37 billion pounds just sounds absolutely huge and i guess until we see some figures from other countries we won't know whether that was a a reasonable expenditure or not but um yeah people are fairly surprised by it people are people are shocked because it hasn't worked i mean i don't think anyone can disagree with the concept of speed trumping perfection but I think you can question it if it hasn't worked. And quite clearly, the testing's been okay, it's worked, but the tracing and the isolation hasn't worked. It's been an abject failure throughout the whole process. It hasn't improved. That, I think, is a big issue for people. It's not a big issue for me, John. I like things that don't work. I like things that cost £37 billion and don't work. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, has anyone got anything interesting they'd like to say for the podcast this week that doesn't involve Matt Hancock? We all know that there's Simon Stevens. Uh, Does everyone know who Simon Stevens is, by the way? Stick your hands up if you do. Oh, none of us. I don't know. I don't know either. So so Simon Stevens is the chief executive of the NHS. Or NHS England, as it's known. What is NHS England, though? Well... Why don't we ask someone who knows all about these things? You don't mean the editor of Health Policy Insight and columnist for the BMJ and HSJ, Andy Cowper, do you? Andy, Andy, Andy Cowper explains. NHS England is an executive non-departmental public body of the Department of Health but social care, blah, blah, blah. You can read Wikipedia for yourselves. But what does NHS England really do? NHS England is the plumbing system for the money in the NHS, and it's the police. It's in charge of the system, it's responsible to Parliament, and it's going to tell you off if you do things that its leader, Simon Stevens, doesn't like. The organisation was first led by Sir David Nicholson, the former uh, NHS chief executive, and it's currently led by Sir Simon Stevens. Uh, David Nicholson was a communist, Sir Simon Stevens was a Labour councillor, so perhaps in our children's children's lifetimes, NHS England will be led by a former Liberal Democrat. I hope that's left you wiser and better informed. That's all the news that's fit to print in health policy. Cheerio. Andy, Andy, Andy Cowper explains. Well, I'm none the wiser. Um, but, but yeah, go on, Julian. The point of this long and rambling introduction is that uh, Simon Stevens is, is going to be leaving soon and uh, is going to be replaced by somebody. So who do we... Who do we think it could be? Let's have a little... Uh, let's go around the table and ask the the uh, expert panel who they would like to see as, as the next chief executive. Mike. 
So uh, it's a tricky job. Um, and I think it's perhaps uh, too much of a job for one person, a job share perhaps. So I was thinking about this. Someone who could do a good cop, bad cop routine. Mm-hmm. Someone used to handling the media, handle mm-hmm. tricky politicians, good track record. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it's simple for me. I would go for Rod Hull and Emu. <laughs> it's a nice idea, Mike. I have to stop you there. Rod Hull fell off a roof a few years ago. He's uh, Emu's still around, but I'm afraid there's no one left to stick their hand up, Emu. Okay, in that case, I'll go for Bob Carroll G's and Spit the Dog. <laughs> All right, so uh, a nice opener from Mike. Uh, John, got a, got, a, got any ideas that don't involve glove puppets? Well, I, I, I do, actually. I want to continue the theme of job sharing because I think that it is too big a job for one person. I mean, Chief Executive NHS England, it's quite a lot. So I've been thinking about maybe a committee and I've and I've also you know looked at diversity I've looked at access openness popularity and so I'm of the view that the cast of loose women would be the perfect conglomerate to be the the, the <laughs> chief exec of NHS <laughs> no 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 sorry sorry no hear me out I've I, I've thought about it so I've got Janet Street Porter on comms Linda Dobson NHS London deputised by Stacey Solomon. We've got Kim Marsh on procurement. Denise Welsh, the North. She's from the North East and she knows about pandemic management. What do you mean she knows about pandemic management, John? Well, she's, she's, she's been advising, you know, many of her followers on, on moving and coming out of lockdown. Has she? Oh. Look, I'm confident. Loose women. There's my offer. <laughs> All right, John. <laughs> well, who have you got? Who have you got up in, up your sleeve? My vote would be for for Meghan Markle. I mean, I you know you can't go wrong, can you? She's got she's got everything. She's a strong woman. She lives in Yorkshire. Uh, I'm not talking about the same Meghan Markle, by the way. I'm talking about Meghan Markle from Bradford. It's completely different. I wouldn't go anywhere near the other Meghan Markle because it's just so controversial. <laughs> You know, sometimes you hear a, a, an album and you know it's just going to be great forever, like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Well, this week's Virtue Signal is just one of those. Virtue Signal of the Week! An AA man once asked me, what do you do? I replied, I'm a doctor. Oh, my last customer was a specialist surgeon, he exclaimed. What kind of doctor are you? I am a GP, I replied. Oh, wow. So you're a specialist in, well, everything. Yes. Yes, I am. Virtue signal of the week. He's one of the top chief execs in the UK. He's redefined the relationship between mental health and community services. He leads the UK Zero Suicide Alliance and he makes a surprisingly good cheese and onion pie. I'm talking about Joe Rafferty. Joe, welcome to the place, Matt. It's lovely to see you. Tell us a joke. Oh, all right. From my, from my childhood, uh, mum walks into the doctor and says, can I have something for my kidneys? He gives him a pound of onions. Ba-bum. That's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> What bad habit do we have in the NHS? Well, I suppose I could say how long have you got? But um, uh, 
Well, look, I, I think in the NHS, I, I'm going to—I'll pick on one thing here, and what I'm going to say is—is competitiveness or competition. And I don't mean that as the sort of market-oriented competition. And actually, oddly, the most competitive group of people uh, I've ever encountered are NHS chief executives. I think actually, when we're all interviewed and selected to be particularly provider chief executives, we're actually selecting you for those characteristics. And now what we're saying is, you know, uh, by the way, we want you to do it a bit differently. That competition, you know, has a value. You know, wanting to create an edge, wanting to make your organization the best uh, is, of course, important. It's really important. But I think um, unchecked, it becomes an enemy of relationship. It becomes the thing that really stops us being allies. And, you know, if you if you think about the current white paper stuff and, you know, we're going to move from competition to cooperation. But in truth, what's ever stopped us cooperating? Do we have the NHS we deserve? It's probably a question we all might have answered differently a year ago. I do think we need to think about that question in the context of, of where we've been for the past year and and uh, COVID, because we have seen a, a pretty remarkable response. Difficult as that has been, and it has been difficult, um, because uh, we faced so many challenges that, that we routinely haven't faced before. Uh, but, but the one thing I think, as I reflect back on that, is uh, we've seen a tremendous sense of teamwork grow. We've seen a set of connections grow that um, uh, probably we haven't before. We've moved at a pace at times has been completely and utterly remarkable. So I think, I think you know, in the context of, of uh, COVID, um, the NHS has stood up and, and stood up well. But, but during this pandemic, we have discovered actually there are lots of, of things that we need to address. There's much more we could have done uh, if we had uh, really heavily and properly invested in social care, if, uh, if colleagues in, in uh, primary care were resourced in a different way better, but also resourced in a different way. If telemedicine was a real thing rather than something that feels like it's an interesting, innovative thing to do on the side. If we started to mainline that stuff, then I think actually we get a really, really promising future. In answering the question, let's acknowledge the brilliant job the NHS did in the the past 12 months. What's made you passionate about preventing suicide in this country? Let's just say about 6,000 people a year die by suicide. Um, That's a football team a day. That's the equivalent of 12 jumbo jets a year crashing. Uh, And if you you sort of go with the last uh, analogy, uh, if we had 12 jumbo jets crashing a year, you can imagine what the public response would be. Uh, Civil Aviation Authority would be in, there would be no airplanes taken off until we understood the issues. And we treated this as a sort of societal safety question. Yet, you know, we can have 6,000 in, in England of our citizens die. Die in despair, you know, I think is probably uh, die to um, because, because life doesn't feel worth living. For me, it feels like it's just really one of those wicked problems. About a third of those people die while they're under the care of mental health services. A number of years ago, I think... Oddly, uh, we got to a point, even in uh, mental health organisations, of accepting that suicide's inevitable. And, you know, that provoked for me the question, um, well, why are we trying to do prevention? Because if you think something's inevitable, you probably won't try and prevent it. And it really made me begin to question, have we got a paradox here that we need to address? 
And of course, you know, as a chief executive of a mental health trust who has who has dealt with bereaved families as a result of suicide in our care, it uh, it made me feel very, very strongly my personal accountability as a chief executive when when a, a bereaved relative says, but when our son or daughter came to your services, we thought they were going to be safe. That's a really big challenging statement. So it made us in Mercy Care think really differently. And, and we, we rather audaciously said we were going to be a zero suicide organization. It led us to a really interesting conversation with staff. You know, if the number isn't zero, what's the right number? And, you know, that's a pretty hard question to answer. Um, I think you get to, the answer should be zero. We said zero suicide is, isn't rhetoric. It has to become a set of practices. And we've started to embed those practices in something called the Zero Suicide Alliance. And and I would love everybody who listens to this podcast to just Google Zero Suicide Alliance and take on our training. That would be a really worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, it's very powerful. What, what do you think is going to have the biggest effect on mental health services in the next 12 months? We know if you look at any... Um, sort of serious societal shock. You know, we can talk about the pandemic. Um, but if you look uh, at, um, you know, terrorist incidents, uh, earthquakes, you know, sig- significant civic upset, you see you see the mental health response to that. The trauma that that generates in the population tends to not immediately generate a response but there is a lag time. So, you know, we've got to be really careful in the next 12 months because because we see, quote marks, nothing happen, that nothing will happen. We need to take a really long-term perspective on this. We need to put surveillance systems in place that are going to give us very early clues about whether or not we're seeing an uptick in, you know, uh, some of the really, really significant things that are probably going to boil over into big service problems in the future. We do know that children's mental health is is um, already a significant issue. CAM services are under distinct pressure. Our crisis services are boiling hot. Demand for mental health beds are starting to outstrip the availability of beds because I think it's going to take mental health services a good five years to recover. And I still think we're going to see the, the surge yet to come. I think the other really critical thing I would say for mental health is to invest in things that aren't mental health, or at least don't have the mental health label on them. We need a primary care recovery fund. I think we need a social care recovery fund. These things are important to people who are experiencing mental instability, mental illness, uh, as are organisations like my own. About your organisation, how do you hold your own and your organisation's own in a system full of acute hospitals? Yeah, there's no chestnut. If the pandemic taught me a lesson, and I think it's a lesson probably uh, most people in mental health and community services have already picked up, is um, to to sort of provide mutual aid into a system in the way that we did during the pandemic, you sort of got to have some scale. If you're a very small provider, it's just difficult to find the additional bandwidth frankly to be able to you know um to team and ladle uh you know uh teams from one part of the system into the other the last thing i'd say about getting a little bit bigger 
is to get into that whole uh, area around how do we how do we structure our information differently? How do we become a cornerstone of this, you know, this thing that everybody keeps talking about around population health management? But how actually do you move that from an interesting set of concepts into being an organization that begins to structure itself around that? So so I think for all of those reasons, John, I, I feel confident that um, uh, we'll be able to to hold our own in, in that sort of approach. You know, the question is, uh, uh, you know, will... will, will other organizations uh, be able to do that. Joe, hi, it's Mike here. Um, are we doomed to make these mistakes again in the NHS? I mean, what can we learn from our past mistakes? It's this thing about, you know, the NHS is missing a design step. We never design. You know, this, look at what we're doing with ICSs. What we're doing is retrofitting the existing structures into the policy rather than saying, here's the policy, now do a design step. If we had the balls to do that, it would be great. But that would take a, a political commitment that I, I don't know if we'll ever get that. Joe, in the, in the Placemat podcast, um, we like to finish our interviews with some quick-fire questions, last about 60 seconds. We don't judge you. I'm delighted. Can't wait. Ready? Black pudding or white pudding? Black pudding. Nando's order. I've never been. <laughs> Luis Suarez or Fernando Torres? Oh, Suarez every time. Best James Bond? Uh, the last one. Oh, okay. Daniel Daniel Craig? Daniel Craig, yeah. Your HSJ award or your CBE? Uh, I'll have my CBE. What's the meal you make better than anybody? I make a really good cheese and onion pie. Who's been the best political leader in your lifetime? Uh, probably, uh, I'm going to say John Hume, which is a very localised Northern Irish thing, but uh, people should look at him. Who's the health professional you most admire? I, I think um, I think Chris Whitty has done a tremendous job during the pandemic. Favorite film? Uh, favorite film would be the Godfather trilogy. Jeans or shorts? Uh, uh, shorts. I know it's a ter- terrible thought. <laughs> How do you have your steak? How do I have my steak? I have it uh, rare. What's your favorite place in the world? Uh, Great Barrier Reef. Your favourite comedian, Matt Hancock or Jeremy Hunt? Uh, I'm not going to make a a distinction there. Diplomatic. Thank you, Joe. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for coming on to the place, Matt. See you soon. Have a great day. See you now. Bye. Okay, so coming on now is a doctor so popular, I think he should start his own social movement and try and get 80,000 followers on Twitter. It's, of course, Pete Turton. So I was in my lab the other day when quite by chance I mixed some mould from a petri dish with the hospital canteen's curry Thursday korma sauce and I made a new drug. It's called tetitimab and tetitimab cures everything. We are going to give it to everyone and it will fix the health service. Now I haven't actually tested whether it works on patients but it's a great drug it'll work and we should be prescribing it for everyone, just underneath the prescriptions for Twitter muffs, virulin eight tracks, and anti-dementia flashcards. Why do I think it will work? Because I tweeted about it. Where's the evidence it will help? I tweeted about it. Are you sure this will help? I tweeted about it, and 23 people replied and said it was a great idea. Sure, none of them were shop floor staff, and they wouldn't be the ones setting up the 36 hour infusion that Tatitimab requires, but that doesn't matter. Twitter said it was great, so it is. Now, none of this is true, 
though the healing properties of the Curry Thursday Coma Sauce have yet to be fully evaluated. But it's interesting how quality improvement in the NHS can be driven by waves of self-promotion. The Twitter accounts of the Associate Deputy Assistant Director of Nursing and Patient Exchange and Catering proclaiming some tiny intervention will be the next game changer. No trial run of your amazing QI project, no test period. Design your idea, make a poster, put it on Twitter, and Bob's your uncle, you're an innovator. Who cares what the results show? Part of the problem, of course, is the difference between health research and QI. Research requires a mountain of paperwork, and many hours sat nodding along thoughtfully in a public and patient involvement seminar, trying not to choke on the stench of stale buffet whilst a professional patient tells you that the ethics committee will reject your work because the font you chose on the consent form was too aggressive. QI, on the other hand, has none of these hurdles. Just do your idea. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. If anyone asks friend points, tell them they're the problem. Like the woman who once dropped the C-bomb on me when I pointed out a spelling mistake on the COVID whiteboard that checked whether the nurse, the doctor, the physio and the WRBS had all spoken to the same family that day. And yes, you can argue that the research preprint has taken peer review processes off the table whilst we all get excited about whether Turkish Delight cures COVID in an RCT of Egyptian warthogs. And we know some people hide research in order to circumnavigate the hurdles, such as the surgeons who thought it would be hilarious to see if they could audit if belly piercings cause chlamydia. But with QI, you get the feeling that promotion matters more than the process. The philosopher, philanthropist and comedian David Brent once said, a good idea is a good idea forever. To be honest, I just want to know if it's a good idea in six weeks' time. Okay, that's great. Looks like we've come in under time, and unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. If you like what you've heard, then please subscribe to our podcast channel. If you haven't, then you're going to have to ask yourself what you've been doing for the last 25 minutes and 53 seconds. I can be found at Dr. M.D. Smith. I can be found at Mr. John M. Bennett. And I can be found at Jay Tweeterson. So I just need to thank our guests today, Joe Rafferty, and a bit of a surprise appearance there from Andrew Cowper, and of course, Pete Turton. We'll see you next week with a new guest, and of course, Pete Turton, although I don't believe a word he says. Mike, I understand that you've got a personal relationship with Pete Turton, or you had one, and he cut you off. He's entitled to cut you off if he wants to. Look, has he said anything about you since he cut you off? I don't think he has, but yet you continue to trash him. Okay, okay, I'm done with this. I am done with this. You can trash me, mate, but... The placemat. Tougher than a doily. Neater than a tablecloth. He was sacked, wasn't he, John? He was sacked. He didn't just resign.